All right, everybody, we are back with the Strut South podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Greathouse. Oh, turkey season is finally here. We are a week into it, and it can't be a better time of the year than right now. Oh, I just, I'm so excited that turkey season is finally here. A couple of quick updates before we get into this episode. Guys, we have an awesome giveaway going on right now. Go to our Strut South TV Facebook. Go to Strut South YouTube. And go there and check that giveaway out. We're giving away an Alps Grand Slam turkey vest. All you have to do is go on Facebook, like and share that post, and then go to YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And you do that, you'll be entered to win. And it's got all the rules and whatnot on there. So you go there, check that out. And we're going to be giving that vest away on May the 1st. Now, for this episode here, this one is pretty freaking awesome. We've got Dr. Mike Chamberlain. He's a wildlife biologist. He works at the University of Georgia. The guy's been studying turkeys for a long time. He really knows his stuff when it comes to these birds. And in this episode, we really hit on a lot of different topics. The biggest one we hit on is population and predators and stuff like that. It's sort of a controversial topic. And I didn't didn't ask him in this podcast, I'll go ahead and tell you now, I didn't ask him anything about why don't they try to increase the population why aren't the biologists doing anything? All that good stuff because that's not that's not on the biologists. That's not their job. All they can do is give the Department of Natural Resources and the state agencies and all those guys all they all they can do is give them information. That's not we can't just put population on just the biologists. And we do talk about population and the the decline of turkey population. We really hit on a lot of stuff about that. Um, We talk a lot about predators. And then we really hit on that for most of the podcast. But then after that, we talk about um, gobbling turkeys. We touch on a little bit about turkey's memory. and um, it's, It's just packed slap full of stuff guys so i hope y'all enjoy this episode and let's get to it all right everybody we're back with another episode on the strut south podcast today we have dr mike chamberlain he is a professor at the university of georgia and there he teaches wildlife ecology and management. Um, he's He really knows this stuff about turkeys. He's been studying and researching turkeys for quite a while. And we wanted to get him on here today to talk some turkey. So what's going on there, Mike? Oh, it's glad to be here. It's good to talk to you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, so, Mike, um, why don't you go ahead and tell us uh, – what made you want to become a biologist? Yeah, so I grew up in the suburbs um, with a dad that that 
hunted on the weekends and I was outside as much as I could be. So when I was growing up, I, all I wanted to do was be outside and, and hunt or fish. And, and, uh, that, that was my start. Once I got to college, I, I realized that wildlife research was my calling. So, um, I have spent my entire career going in that direction. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Um, now to start this thing off, um, we spoke before we actually got going and a lot of these, I, a lot of the podcast I'm starting to do like a rapid fire Q and a, and, uh, okay. on the previous, on all the previous episodes, they were, <clears throat> they were all questions that didn't pertain to turkeys or hunting at all. And they were just completely okay. random. But today these questions are, are going to be all about turkeys and, uh, okay. You can, uh, you don't really have to give me a, like a super short answer, but you know, just, uh, kind of the shortest answer possible. And some of them you may have to go a little in depth with, and I think you'll know which ones you'll have to go in depth with once you hear them, but we'll go okay. ahead and, uh, get into that. All right. Um, so the snood on a turkey, yep. what is it for? Yeah, so snoods, if if you look in the literature, uh, many people argue have absolutely no function whatsoever or no known function. Um, other studies have tried to evaluate the influence of snoods on hen selection. In other words, does snood length tend to be something that a hen would look at when she's selecting a tom? And the data is kind of all over the place that, some some work on captive turkeys has shown that its new length actually tends to to be an indicator of of breeding success so in other words toms that have longer snoods uh gain more breeding opportunities but all that work's been in you know on domestic birds i think in the wild it, it's it's pretty much an unknown huh. okay i do know that like i noticed that the it does kind of I've never really known the full function of it either. I know that they can move it and they use it for whatever purpose. I don't know, but I mean, cause I know a yeah, lot I of mean, times it, 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 go ahead. It's a part of the, it's a part of their display. No question. Yeah. I mean, you've got this, you got this, you know, fleshy piece of skin on, on their head that engorges with blood and changes colors. And I mean, it's clearly it's part of their, you know, their display. Um, beyond that there's a lot there's, yeah there's a lot there's there's less that we know than right. what we that we don't know than what we do yeah i know they a lot of times you notice it the most when they're if they're coming in kind of angry ready to fight they stick they have that thing stuck straight up and they'll move it up yeah. and down and uh but yeah i don't know uh now that made me think of something else the crown i guess you would call it their crown you know, the big mm -hmm. white spot on top. A lot of times, which you don't see it much, but on some turkeys, you see it, and it's like real, real saggy, and then sometimes their snoot will be super, super long. Would that be an indication of like a, an older turkey? Not to my knowledge. I mean, you, you do see a lot of, you, you see a lot of individual variation among toms. So, you I mean, you can have, you know, one tom that has 
a head crown that's slightly different, smaller, less prominent than another bird. I, I think a lot of that is just you know, variation amongst toms. Okay. All right, so we'll move on to the next thing. All right, um, drumming. Mm-hmm. How do turkeys drum? Yeah, so basically, you know, you got this bird that's standing there and, and he's he's displaying by putting his wings down, throwing his tail up. All of his coverts or his, his body, his contour feathers are, are standing up, if you will. Uh, he's spitting. Uh, all of that creating that that drumming, that sound that's that's associated with the movement of, of air across those feathers and the dropping of those wings onto the ground and the standing up to the tail. Um, all that goes into creating that that drumming. Oh, okay. So it's like basically they they pretty much use their whole body. Is that is am I right on that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. All right, and is there like some kind of? And then I guess that could, you could go into that and strutting. Like, how do they? What is it? Almost like they've got a big beach ball inside of them, or something like that, when they strut. Uh, I'm not following. Like, like, how do they? I just I've always wondered, you know, kind of how do they? How do they puff up and make themselves look bigger? Bigger, I guess they just fluff all their it, feathers it, out. Exactly, it's all of their their contour feathers, all of their coverts that are on, you know, their back, their tail, all stand up. They're all they all become erect, and at that point, it it gives them that illusion that they are, you know, twice the size that they that they were. Okay. All right. And this, uh, all right, this next one, I don't, I don't know if you'll have an answer because I've never, I've never thought about this, but I'm asking this for my wife. <laughs> she has always wanted to know why do turkeys have scaly legs? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't, I don't know if there's an answer to that. <laughs> if there is, I don't have it. <laughs> Okay, we'll just I guess leave it to the unknown. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um. All right. Well, now we'll get into a little bit bigger questions here. Um, their eyesight and their hearing. Um, if you can, could you kind of compare what their eyesight and their hearing is compared to other animals? I guess say compared to a human. Yeah, so, you know, obviously any turkey hunter knows that turkeys have excellent eyesight. <clears throat> a lot of a lot of people don't know that they have exceptional hearing too. Their their hearing is different though. And if you if you look at a, a turkey, particularly uh pen birds or imprinted birds that are imprinted to humans, they have a really strong sense of place. And what I mean by that is, <clears throat> excuse me, they they hear a sound and they have an exceptional ability to locate the direction and the distance to that sound. So, you know, a bird, as any hunter knows, a bird can hear a yelp from a long distance away and end up at that spot, you know, within right. feet of that spot. 
Um, some of the research that we're, we're doing now is actually showing that these birds may end up hours later at a spot from which a, a hunter was calling, you know, the hunter's been gone for hours and the Tom ends up at the exact spot the hunter was sitting three or four hours down the road, which just leads you to, I mean, it, it just shows you that they have an exceptional sense of place and awareness and they know exactly where the sound came from and they can go locate it. Yeah. As far as their, as far as their eyesight, I mean, they're, they have incredible eyesight, but their eyesight is geared towards is obviously is geared towards movement. If, if they could, if they could pick apart detail, like, uh, like we can, yeah. they, you know, camouflage wouldn't work necessarily as well, but, but they are really keen on movement and therefore, you know, any, any type of, of movement in their environment, they're aware of it. Yeah. I, I was actually having a conversation with a buddy of mine about that exact thing, their eyesight. And like you said, we all know they can see great. Um, and we come up, we were just talking and I, we kind of came up with the assumption that they, we don't, you know, we didn't think they could see detail as, as good as most think they could. Um, right. Right. If that were the case, um, they wouldn't, you know, 10, 15 years ago or whatever, they would have never come into a setup with people that had foam decoys. Um, Exactly. Exactly. Um, and that's what we come up with, you know, biggest thing was movement and uh and as far as hearing you know you i think i've always thought the same exact thing what you explained there um i and i think a lot of people don't realize i i I think that they can hear better than they can see um whether that's a fact or not may not be but i know they can yeah i mean really well they they can you know again they they have they have an exceptional sense of awareness and then in, in conversations with other researchers who have, and there aren't many left that have imprinted birds to themselves. You know, if, if you think about it from a Turkey's perspective, from the time they're a poult and, you know, one day old poult until they're adults, they survive by being able to see and hear everything around them. So yeah, if you're if you're a poult, you're watching for insects, you're listening for insects, and if you if you watch even really young poults forage, you can tell that they're using not only their eyes but their ears to locate bugs in their environment. Right. So you know those two senses go hand in hand for a turkey. Yeah, I, and I've said this. I think I've told this story before on the podcast, but I'll tell you, we um. And that's that's one reason I've always thought about the hearing because we had a I've had a hen before she came into the setup and flew up in the tree and um, it was a it was like five minutes later um, a coyote came running through and she, you know the coyote disappeared waited about two or three minutes and then the hen flies back down on the ground and goes about her day um, but it, I mean that's what I assumed was she could hear that coyote from there's no telling how far he was away i mean because it took him five minutes to get there um it's just crazy um now is i don't know if this might be a kind of a weird question too um 
with bearded hens, I don't know. There's there's kind of this assumption. I think some people believe it, some people don't. Um, bearded hens and multi-bearded gobblers. Um, is there any kind of fact or research out there that a bearded hen, if a bearded hen has gobblers, that they'll have multiple beards? No, no, we have no no data on on that particular question bearded hens are quite common we we of all the the birds we capture in my career if i think back of all the birds all the hens that i put my hands on you know with a rocket net i'd say at least eight ten twelve percent were bearded uh it's very wow. common and and then beards are are simply their feathers um, right so it, it's not, it's not, shouldn't be that shocking to have, you know, bearded hens, but I, I'm unfamiliar. To my knowledge, there's no link demonstrating that a bearded hen would, would therefore have clutches that would have toms that end up being, you know, having multiple beards. I, you know, that's, that's simply a consequence of the way that the keratinized feathers develop sometimes develop beards that are different than others i got you and that was kind of my thought was it was almost kind of like just an anomaly basically for gobblers i mean we just it's not that uncommon either for gobblers to have multiple beards um no no we we catch a lot of toms that have two in particular that will have a a primary beard and then you know a second beard that's really thin and wispy you know which hunters see pretty commonly yeah i remember um the biggest turkey i've ever killed um he scored like right at 70 um and i remember he's he's the probably the most unique turkey that i've ever killed not because of his size but his beard was it was crazy because it was like like seriously he had like I'm, I'm, I know it's feathers, but I'm going to say hairs. Like some of the strands of hair from his beard were literally as thick as a pencil lead. It was almost like hmm, there was interesting. Yeah, there was. It was almost like there was. It's almost like there was you know a bunch of the hairs glued together. I mean, they were seriously like, and I got a pen here. They were seriously like bigger than the tip of the pen it was it was crazy i've never seen one like that i'll have to i'll actually have to send you a picture of that i, I might put it on facebook because it, it is it's really it's unreal looking um he just had a super it was super nasty thick beard um so enough about that we'll get on to the podcast uh <laughs> now now we'll get into some you know more you know, general questions and stuff and get kind of off of the anatomy of birds. Um, now the biggest, the biggest question, and this is probably going to be the biggest topic on the whole podcast, um, is population. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of people believe that the population is going down. Yes. And so if you could touch on that. Absolutely. So without a doubt, 
across the southeastern United States, we've seen long-term declines in productivity, um, meaning the number of poults that are observed per hen in the summer. That's a, that's a trend that's common across all the states. That decline has been ongoing since about time restoration stopped, so early 90s in, in a lot of states. And we noted that in some states, the decline actually started before restoration stopped. So in other words, birds were still being translocated in different places and, and the decline was, was already uh, evident. It kind of snuck up on us, honestly, because, you know, turkeys in the 90s and early 2000s, mid 2000s were doing quite well. And although the states were seeing these declines in productivity, people were still hearing a lot of turkeys, killing a lot of turkeys. Harvest was was increasing in almost every state. Um, and now within the past decade, and particularly the past six, seven, eight years, you've seen you know, a lot of states have shown declines not only in, in productivity, but, but also in... Um, and harvest and that's that's obviously problematic so yeah i and that we're some and and abundance you know obviously those declines are not uniform across the landscape some people still have quite a few turkeys but a lot of people are complaining that they that they do not yeah um then there's a lot of, I don't know, we can, we'll go in a little bit, but I don't want to just stay on the whole subject of population for the whole podcast. But I mean, do you think that may have something to do with predators? Um, I, I, I kind of have the, the idea that um, nobody traps anymore. Well, I mean, if, and if they do, it's no, it's nowhere near what it used to be. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. If you, if you look at it, there's no question predation is part of the issue. If you, if you look at the landscape from a turkey's perspective in 2019 versus, say, 1995, from a predator standpoint, you have very few fur trappers anymore, and fur has almost no value. Right. You have... Um, populations of a lot of your smaller predators like raccoons opossums that have that have increased you have at least in the far eastern united states you have the presence of coyotes that were not even in those states in the early 90s um and then excuse me you wrap all that together and from a turkey's perspective a lot of things eat turkeys you know from all the way from poults to adults, you have everything from from raccoons and skunks and opossums and foxes and bobcats and rat snakes and I mean that list goes on and on. It it's a tough thing being a turkey in a predator rich environment. Right, I agree, and I I think that's even the bigger problem. Not necessarily coyotes, which I think coyotes definitely do put pressure on turkeys but i i think that the worst part of the problem 
as far as predators go, I think it's, you know, your raccoons, your possums, your armadillos, all that stuff, because those are the ones that are actually, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think those are the types of predators that are actually looking for turkey eggs. Yeah, so we've, I've had quite a bit of research on on this topic, and, and we've never found evidence, at least with raccoons, that they actually search for nest. In fact, we we had some really interesting research on this. Instead, what we found was raccoons were they leave their den sites and they go about their business, and once they start, they get to areas where vegetation says, "Hey." there's probably some stuff in here to eat, whether it's, whether it's amphibians, whether, I mean, it could be any prey source, fruits, whatever. They start bouncing around and, and kind of using these circular type movements. And if, if you happen to be a turkey in an area that has high raccoon density, your, your nest is in trouble. Um, you know, the law of averages, if you think about it, a, a turkey incubates 28 days and in a 28 day period, if you are in an area that has a, a high raccoon density, the chances of you being able to pull off a clutch of eggs sitting there a month is pretty slim. Um, the, the whole pred- predator issue is, is complex as, you know, as anyone will tell you, because you, again, you have, you have a bird that is susceptible to predation while they're incubating so you've got a suite of predators like raccoons that are responsible for eating eggs. And we know that nest success is the primary driver of turkey populations. That, I mean, a lot of things influence it, but that is the primary driver. So if, right. you, if you have high nest success, all things being equal, you, can, you make a lot of turkeys and <clears throat> things go well. But if you have chronically low nest success, which is what we're seeing in, in most of the Southeast right now, um, then turkeys have a tough road ahead of them. And then, you know, once they're adults, we, we have consistent turkey loss to, to predators, larger predators, bobcats being a, a, a primary predator, particularly of, of females while they're incubating or, or on a recess from incubation. The, the coyote issue, yeah. you know, is a complicated one as well. We don't, I do a lot of research on coyotes as well. And we don't see turkeys showing up in diets of coyotes much. It's not common to find turkey remains in coyote diets, but we are tending to see, and and this is some work that's ongoing. So I, I really don't have final answers on it, but we are seeing that there's a chance that coyotes could be introducing a perceived risk to turkeys. In other words, the birds may know, call it, you know, not necessarily know, but they, they recognize that this, this dog is not a primary threat to them as long as they're a certain distance away from the bird, but it's a, it's, it's a threat. It's a harassment. It's a disturbance. And, and if that's the case, then coyotes could be acting as simply a, a perceived risk and a stressor and yeah and that kind of goes back to the notion that i've been asked this question many many times is you know why are turkeys declining and and there's no smoking gun predation is is one of of many things that are influencing turkeys 
it's really more of a bleeding by a thousand cuts, if you will. Right. And you've got a predator issue. You may have some predators that are killing egg or killing nest or depredating nest. You have some predators that are killing adults. You have uh, some predators that may not do either a lot, but they are simply a stressor on the landscape. And then you have issues with, with habitat and disease and, and, you know, the list goes on and on. So it's not really a, a smoking gun, if you will. It's, it's, it's again, you know, bleeding yeah. by a thousand cuts. Yeah. I, and I've kind of always thought of that, you know, as coyotes is coyotes are really more of an opportunist than, than anything. I think they actually seek out, you know, mice and, stuff like that, smaller stuff. And, um, yeah, they, they tend, I mean, the, the, the coyote work that we've done has shown that at least in this part of the world, um, deer, rabbits, small mammals, you know, rats and mice and fruits. That's the four things that coyotes eat and that dominates their diet year round. Yeah. So I guess the biggest takeaway, I'm, if you want turkeys to be on your property, um, you need to manage it for habitat and all the predators that you got. <laughs> yeah, which is you know, it 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 ultimately does come back to habitat. The yeah. the the issue that I think a lot of people uh, a lot of people may not pay as close of attention to is you know turkeys are turkeys are a wide ranging critter. They, they can move any turkey hunter knows that these animals are mobile. And, and although they are constrained to a home range, I mean, they use a home range like most other critters, they move a lot. And one of the things that we don't understand about turkeys, which is uh, frankly, is a bit shocking given how much work we've done on this bird, but we don't understand a lot about their dispersal. So, you know, when these, when these juvenile hens end up taking off from there where they were hatched and they end up moving somewhere or these jakes that end up getting displaced um, from mom's, you know, natal home range, where do they go? And, and what we've seen based on the little data we have is these birds may end up 10, 15, 20 miles down the road somewhere uh, setting up shop, if you will, the, the following spring. And if you think about that, if that's kind of the distance these animals travel when they disperse, and, and again, we don't know that answer, what you do on your thousand acres could be influenced and, and is influenced by what's going on around you at a very large scale. And, yeah. and, I, and I think that the turkey world, in many ways, um, should should look at perhaps what is going on in some of the other species, if you will. For instance, you know the Quality Deer Management Association and the whole idea of cooperatives that are that are trying to lend attention to. Hey, could we put our, our heads together and try to understand and, and help each other in our management scenarios? I think a lot of private landowners should think about that same approach for turkeys because. They are they're linked on your property to every property around them without without a doubt. 
Yeah, that's that's really good stuff there. Um, it would be a really good place to start. Um, well, I guess we'll just kind of get off of the population thing. I know it's a it's a problem, but and I think I think what we're the way to solve it is not going to be just a quick answer. It's going to be everybody has to come together and figure out a plan and we all got to be to me it's kind of like i think we all need to be stewards of the land and stewards to the turkeys to really really figure out what we can do to make sure the population stays sustained at least yeah you know a lot of a lot of discussion at least in the and the research community is, and the and kind of the the state agency community is, are we in a new normal, if you will? In other words, is the turkey population that we see when we when we drive across the landscape now, is that what we're going to be dealing with? Is it going to get lower? Can we increase it? Um, and and we don't know those answers, but my my opinion for what it's worth is that we are in, in a new normal and we're not going to see the abundance of birds that we saw in, in some areas. Now we're, we're speaking in particularly I'm speaking in generalities here. Right. Obviously there are some places that, that are chock-a-block full of turkeys and probably will continue to be for, for decades. But Speaking across the landscape, I think we're probably in a situation now where we're not going to go back to where we were 15 years ago. And instead, as managers and and stewards and hunters, we're going to have to be proactive and recognize that there aren't things that are readily within our control. Some of the things you and I are talking about are not readily addressed. So, for instance... You know, predation, controlling or managing predation on a on a broad scale is impossible. So, right. so, and you're dealing with such a broad suite of animals anyway. I mean, you, everything from snakes to to owls and raptors and mammals, and it's just it's very complex. So, you look at the predation issue and you think, okay, well, we can't really manage that at a large scale. So, what about habitat? And, and we both know that it's impossible for us as 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 managers and, and state agencies, it's impossible for them to control and manage large chunks of landscapes. They they deal with wildlife management areas, they deal with national forest, but in the grand scheme of things, that's really a small piece of the landscape. And in reality, private landowners own most turkey habitat. So our ability as as managers to control the broader landscape is pretty limited. So it it begs the question in in my eyes, what can we control? And, you know, one of the things we can control is we can control our hunting activities. We can control um, kind of the, the management recommendations that we provide to private landowners. There are some things that we can do that I think, will ensure that 10 years from now, we're not having the same discussion of, okay, 
I wish we were back where we were 10 years, you know, 10 years ago. Right. Right. And, and instead having the conversation of, okay, now we were in a situation where it looks like our, our populations are sustainable. You know, yes, there may not be as many birds on the landscape as we'd want in some places, but uh, we still have turkeys. We have sustainable populations to hunt and enjoy. And, and, and that may, that may be where we need to, to lend our attention. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll say this and we'll, we'll move on to something else. I, I think, um, I'm kind of like you. I think, I really think <clears throat> the best avenue is land management. And like you said, I mean, you can't leave it. You really can't leave it all up to the States and all that. Cause they can't, there's no way that they can, do that on a large scale like like what you were saying no no i mean they they are you know for instance if you you look at any state agency they're charged with managing state lands and if you look at you know i'm, I'm sitting here looking out my window in in georgia and most of the property that a turkey uses within an hour drive of me is private land and, right. there, and therefore it, it hinges on the the abilities and the wherewithal of private landowners that have an interest in sustainable turkey populations, it, it hinges on their willingness to, you know, to, to be proactive and manage those lands. And, and then on the flip side, it, it, it rests on people like me to provide agencies with the type of information that they need to then disseminate to landowners that, Hey, this is the appropriate fire regime, for instance, for turkeys, or here's, the appropriate basal area if you're thinning your your pine forest this is the basal area that you need to to thin to you know that we all have a stake in this and, and it's not it's not simply squared on the agencies right right because i think and i mean i know you've done a lot of research with deer as well um and i've done i did a podcast with um bronson strickland mm-hmm. yep. at the mississippi state university and uh they do a lot of great stuff with deer as well. And that's one thing that they always harp on a lot is um, turkeys. Turkeys are not quite, I mean, like you said, they, they can move. And I think turkeys can survive just about anywhere. But I think, so deer, deer, they can, like it's a fact, deer can survive in almost any habitat. And, um, Turkeys, turkeys, it seems that turkeys need a little bit, they're a little bit more picky. And uh, Yeah, their requirements are, are definitely yeah. different. You know, I mean, you have a, you have a bird that, that one needs to sleep in a tree because right. if they sleep on the ground, they're, they're dead. Uh, they're yep. predator, predator fodder. So you have a, you have a bird that needs to sleep in a tree. You have a bird that, um, has a head that's like a periscope and therefore they make a living at like we talked about earlier at being able to see and hear so if you put a turkey in a in a really thick brushy environment which a lot of our landscape right now looks like that a, a sweet gum thicket if you will uh, under a pine canopy you have a bird that that is now in an environment that is not a, adaptive for it you have a bird that gets paid to see 
makes a living by vision and hearing and you put it in an environment where it's vision and hearing are obscured and you've just stacked the cards against it. Um, so, so right. turkeys are a bit different. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. a lot, a lot of deer management is conducive with turkey management. But one thing yeah. that, that, that I tell people is, you know, deer are adapted to hide and then go feed and then hide. Yep. And turkeys are adapted to walking around and feeding while they're doing that. And for them to do that successfully, they have to be able to see. Um, yeah. And, and that's, a, that's, and speaking about coyotes as well and, and deer, that's one thing that, that they say on their, they have a podcast, Bronson Strickland. And, uh, that's one thing they said, you know, there's two, there's two animals the only, I think, I think what they said was the only two animals that survive the best when dealing with uh, human expansion, I guess, is the white-tailed deer and the coyote. Uh, I would uh, believe that. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what they said. You know, he said in one of their podcasts, they said, you can go right now, and, and this is kind of off the topic of turkey population and all, and it kind of goes back to what you were saying, you know, it's kind of like the norm. Uh, and there's probably, we kind of just have to go with it. Um, they were talking about, you know, coyotes and deer and, but they said that you could go right now to New York and central park. And again, and they were like, guarantee you there's a coyote somewhere in central park in the without, state of New York. Without a doubt. Yeah. And white-tailed deer are the same. I mean, you can look all over the place. You got white-tailed deer surviving in subdivisions right behind people's houses. And turkeys ain't going to do that. <laughs> and uh, But that's kind of the thing, you know, what he was saying with the coyotes, you know. I mean, it's, and, and it's kind of one of those things, too. I think the coyote gets a little bit of a bad name just because it's coyote and I know this is completely off, and I was trying to go to another topic, but no, I mean there's such a fervor <clears throat> right now with coyotes that you know, and, and some of it is justified. I mean, some of it I yeah. think is a bit overblown, but you know, coyotes are to the to speak into the kind of the new normal of deer management, and, and Bronson and I are good friends, and we've talked about this at length. Is if you're a deer in the southeast right now and moving forward, you're going to deal with coyotes in perpetuity that's it i mean right. they're they're here they're not going anywhere so deer managers are going to have to and, and they are 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 going to have to adjust their their thinking and their management scenarios to account for the fact that there's a dog running around on the landscape now that eats a lot of deer and yeah it, it that's just the new normal and we'll have to make adjustments as as managers and hunters and do the best we can but uh, the, the coyote issue, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a hot, yeah. hot button topic. Oh yeah. And I, I'll say this and, and we'll get off the coyote thing and you you probably agree. I know you're going to agree. If you see one coyote and you think I need to kill him because it's a coyote, just cause you kill him, that don't mean nothing. That ain't going to do nothing. Not, yeah. not that one coyote. That's right. That's right. I mean, it to 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 actually have measurable impacts on 
on prey. You know, research has shown you, you have to remove s- substantial percentages of, right. the, of the coyote population to have any any measurable effect. And and it, and the simp- and the reason <clears throat> is in, in a sentence is really simple. There are what we found is more than about a third of all the coyotes on the landscape are transients, meaning they're just nomads. They're just moving yeah. around, waiting on a territory to open. So, you know, you're in your stand, you see a coyote pop out in a food plot, you shoot it. One, it, it may have just been a, a transient. And then two, if it wasn't, and it was actually a resident that was holding a territory, it's going to be backfilled by a transient. So in other words, you, you shot that one coyote, it's only going to be a matter of weeks before, if not days, before one comes through that area and settles down. We've, we've very clearly shown that with, with our yeah. telemetry data. Now, I will agree. If I see a coyote, I'm probably going to shoot him. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but just don't go into it with the assumption, hey, that's one less coyote, and now it's going to be better for my property. It's not. I mean, there's still going to be one coming in. That's right. That's um, right. I know, and we ain't even we haven't even talked about hogs. Um, and in my opinion, hogs are the worst predator out there. I mean, we know we know we know very little about this. Is kind of an unknown, at least from a turkey's perspective. We don't know a lot about how hogs influence turkeys. There's some. There's some research going on. There has been a, a few uh, kind of smaller studies looking at uh, how hog uh, abundance influences, say, nest. But the, these studies were conducted using artificial nests. So, in other words, researchers go out and they make a nest in these areas. Right. And the, <clears throat> the, the findings are all over the map. It kind of – and I'll just go back to this. This is one of the unknowns, but it, to me, it, it makes, it's common sense to think that hogs would have some influence on turkeys, whether it's, it may not be through depredation of nest, but it may simply be that hogs eat things like acorns that turkeys rely on. Yeah. So I, uh, when I get asked this question, I, I give the, it's not a standard answer. It's just reality. We really don't know, but what we do know is that hogs eat things that turkeys also eat. So therefore it's common sense to think there would, they would be some form of competition for food. And they obviously degrade the environment. They degrade water quality. They degrade soil characteristics and areas and none of that is is beneficial to a turkey. Yeah. And deer. Deer, absolutely. Yeah. All right, well we'll get off of the predation for the predator population topic and uh we'll move on. Um so is have you been doing any type of research dealing with gobbling? Yes. Yes, well, I have a a number of of Irons in the fire, if you will, from a, from the gobbling perspective. Okay, um, I'm 
trying to think how I want to ask this. Um, well, if you will, just I guess go for just so everybody, some people out there may not understand why turkeys gobble. So if you could just kind of go into explaining that. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, toms are, they have two different ways of, of displaying for, for hens. They can strut and drum and those are more subtle type displays or they can gobble, which is obviously a more obnoxious, if you will, uh, way of getting attention. But, you know, we know that turkeys gobble primarily for two reasons. And that's one to attract attention of hens and two to maintain their, their dominance hierarchies. So you have toms that respond to each other. Part of that is, Hey, I'm still over here. I'm going to answer you to make sure, you know, I'm still here. And part of that is, Hey, I'm trying to get some attention from a, from a hen. So I'm going to call and she's going to come check, check me out if you will. Right. Right. All right. So, and, and also I think some people, which I'm pretty sure a lot of people know by now. Uh, and that's why turkeys gobble is for hens to actually come to them. Yeah. In the turkey world, that's the way it's supposed to work. We, uh, as right. hunters, as hunters, we, we're asking a turkey to do something that he's not evolutionarily designed to do, which is, hey, stop displaying and instead come walk over here and check me out. It, it's yeah. supposed to work in the reverse way in the, in the turkey world. The, the tom's supposed to gobble when the hen gets close. He shuts down the gobbling and starts using more subtle cues, spitting, drumming, uh, strutting and basically the reason that these birds stand there and do that is because <clears throat> he's giving her the option to pick which one of those toms she wants to to breed with and that's how sexual selection works in turkeys they gobble the hen gets close and then they use that that elaborate display they have to to try to gain breeding opportunities right i know there's I had a couple of questions leading up to this podcast. <clears throat> Some there was a couple that you know were asking, um, why do they? Why would a turkey gobble and be interested, and then all of a sudden just leave? Well, I think that's the explanation. Is because it's because he's a turkey, and he's really not supposed to come to you. Yeah, yeah. In his eyes, you know, <clears throat> if he. And, and I get this question a lot and it makes complete sense to me. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a Tom and you fly down, take the initiative to move towards what you think is a hen, <clears throat> excuse me. And you don't see her. <clears throat> then why keep walking? Right. I mean, she's supposed to come to you. So I got close enough. Now I'm going to walk off and, if she wants to follow, she can. Yeah. I mean, what you're really hoping to do is you're hoping to catch him in the mood. He don't care. Yeah. Or he is, he's in a situation where he thinks 
his best strategy would be go ahead and approach because either another Tom is going to beat me to it or this is a bird that's in a place that I'd, I'm either I'm comfortable with, I've been here before, I know the area, I'm going, you know, I'll go check it out versus trying to call a Tom into a situation where, you know, an example would be I've never interacted with hens over there. Yeah. I've I've never in my three-year lifespan ever um, strutted and displayed in that spot. I've never been, you know, that's not a place that I go to find hens, I'm going to be really skeptical about going over there. Yeah. Now, have you, have you guys ever done any type of research as far as what, like what makes a turkey? I mean, we, of course, the reason a turkey wants to gobble is to let him know that hen, they want, he wants hens to know his location. Right. But, as far as like other factors like say barometric pressure, weather, uh, temperature, have you done anything as far as trying to figure out what what makes the best days to hear a turkey gobble? We have, and there have been a number of other studies in in the past that have have kind of taken a stab at doing this, and the results are all over the map. And I, I think the the problem is, you you have a an activity that's driven by testosterone. So, you have a bird that has testosterone levels that kind of ebb and flow, and that that drives whether he's really wound up or whether he's not. And then you throw in the 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 whole temperature, wind, barometric pressure, et cetera, et cetera. And as you know, you can you can see subtle changes in weather from one part of an area to another. You can see temperature differences between a bird that's on a roost and a bottom versus one that's roosted somewhere else. So I think from a research standpoint, we just we don't we haven't done a really good job at measuring gobbling and weather at the same scale, if that makes sense. We, we, we yeah. collect weather data at kind of the weather station scale, and then we go on to a WMA somewhere, and we do a really good job at describing, here's how turkeys gobble, and you stick those two data sets together, and they're not compatible with each other. So right. there's a lot we don't know about, about weather, but what I, what I will tell you is of the analysis we've done, it doesn't seem to make a lot of difference um, except for wind. And when it's really windy, we, we don't detect as many gobbles, which is common sense. Now, whether that means they don't gobble when it's windy or we just don't hear them when it's windy, I don't know. I mean, the, the technology we're using to describe gobbling activity is not a human being. It's a, it's a, a song meter, which is basically a a box that we mount on the side of a tree, 30 feet up in the tree with a microphone, and it listens all all day, and it records all ambient sound onto an SD card like you'd have in your camera. And 
then we download that data and we use software to quote pick out the gobbles and then we listen to those gobbles to verify that that's actually what it was because some things like crow calls owl calls coyote howls are all in the same frequency band that turkey gobbles are in so they all appear the same to the computer i say all that to point out that we do all of that and we get all of of that data it could just be that when the wind blows really hard these song meters can't hear as well so the bird may be gobbling and we just don't pick it up or it may be that the bird just doesn't gobble because he's blowing all around in the tree uh, i no. tend to think it's the latter i tend to i just my opinion as a as a hunter and a, as as a person is yeah i don't i don't see that i don't see that they would feel the need to gobble when it's really windy and i and i say that because you know turkeys are if you're a bird that calls you should as as a think about a tom you should go roost somewhere where your sound attenuates the environment so in other words when you gobble you want that gobble to travel a long distance because back to what we were talking about before you want a hen to hear you and then you want her to know exactly where you are and then come check you out so you would you would assume that that a bird would go roost somewhere where you know what when i fire off in the morning this sound is going to carry and therefore, it seems logical to me that if the bird is sitting in a tree and the wind's blowing really hard, that he would recognize that my sound's not going to attenuate the environment. Why, why sit here and gobble my head off if the wind's blowing really hard? I'd be better off to just fly down and go find a hen or go to where I'm displaying, you know, and then see if she comes and visits. That's just my way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Um, and, and that's what I was going to say. I mean, we're all kind of, we're all kind of biologists to a certain extent because we're all out there figuring out these turkeys while we're hunting. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And you're making observations and you're, <laughs> you're comparing your mental notes to birds you've chased before you, you know, that, that's one thing about turkey hunters. They, you know, you're trying to match wits with a bird that's got the advantage. And, yeah. and therefore, I tend to find that not all, but most turkey hunters and all good turkey hunters are very cerebral. They, they think about what they're doing. They think about the bird. They think about the setups. They, they're really cerebral. They, they go yeah. through the process and they really try to figure out, you know, how to, how to match wits with this bird. So, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, every good turkey hunter is a turkey biologist, no question. Yeah, and and that's what I was going to say, too. That's one thing that I've noticed over the years. I've been, I've been turkey hunting for 20 years, and I think I've noticed the most, well, the least amount of gobbling are, is on mornings when it's either overcast and just nasty feeling. It's just really humid, overcast mornings, or on mornings after, like if there was a really bad storm that night and the wind was whooping around, and 
they were up there in that tree fighting the wind all night long. I found those two situations, they seem to really not gobble much at all, if they gobble at all. Yeah, and the, the humid kind of damp mornings, like that makes that makes sense to me because, you know, again, I, our data don't as of yet show this, but again, thinking about it from the standpoint of I'm trying to attenuate sound, <clears throat> it makes sense. If you've got this humid, still, you know, really, really quiet morning with no air movement, your gobble is not going to travel that far. Yeah. So <clears throat> why bother getting all wound up and, and doing it if you know that? Yeah. Yeah, I found as far as the hunting side of it, not the research side, but I mean, which is, I guess it's still all research, but I have found that it seems, and I can't, I guess this kind of goes back to the barometric pressure. Um, you can, you can almost, and, and a lot of people are going to, know exactly what i'm saying when i say this when you get out there and this as you know it's cracking daylight and you're getting ready to listen you can kind of feel it like you feel you can feel it in the air it just feels light and i know that might not make sense to some people but you can you know when the turkey you know what it should be for turkeys to gobble yeah yeah, I mean, and then <clears throat> I think hunters get really frustrated when it's one of those mornings where you know your heart tells you when you get out of the truck, man, they're going to be on fire this morning, and then it's a dud. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think that's, I think that's the biggest question that everybody has, and there may not be an answer. <laughs> Yeah, um, that's that's right. We, it, it may just be something we never know the answer to. Yeah. Um, now, have you um, have you guys ever done any kind of research as far as turkey's memory? No, we have not. Um, the only the only information that I know on on memory is is in regards to kind of the the place, the sense of place that we talked about. Right. Um, recognizing, and again, this is based on conversations with with retired researchers, actually, that imprinted birds to themselves, just noting to me that you know, birds could, they seem to remember with amazing clarity places they had been, um, objects in their environment that maybe one day a stick was out of place that they had walked by previously and it caused them, you know, a lot of grief. Uh, I, a, a friend of mine who's a retired researcher and now lives in West Virginia, he, he spent a lot of his career imprinting birds and, and publishing data on turkeys. And he was telling me a, a story about a bird that got separated one night. He would, this is really interesting. He would take these birds out. Now he, in this case, he's the mom, if you will. He, so these, these poults are imprinted to him. So they, they just walk along with him and he would, he would take these birds out for months and months and months, you know, after they were hatched. So now they're, they're a year old and he would 
kind of walk along with them and watch what they were doing. And this is many, many years ago when we were trying to perfect radio telemetry, actually. And he was telling me a story one night of a hen that got separated from the flock. And they ended up walking and leaving this hen on the side of a mountain. And she was quite some distance from where, from the roost, it was basically a captive roost. And instead of her walking the same route to get back the next morning, basically he had to leave her in a, in a tree that night. The next morning he went, got to the bird, knew exactly where she was. When she flew down, he tried to follow her back to the captive unit where these birds were housed. And instead of walking the path that they took every day, she walked a straight line over the side of the mountain back to the facility. So she knew exactly hmm. where she was going and she knew exactly how to get there. And she chose to go the quickest route rather than the route I've always taken, which to him and it, it, to me, I agree that shows an amazing sense of place that, yeah. that these birds know exactly where they are. They know exactly where they want to go and they know exactly how to get there. Yeah. Hmm. That's, that's actually kind of amazing. Um, and as you were saying that, it got me thinking my head went, my brain just went like way off on the deep end, whether we'll ever know this or not, we probably won't, but that kind of, I mean, we've been talking about their hearing and their eyesight. They're a, they're a vocal bird. So, and they can hear so well. So that kind of maybe has kind of a, something to do with maybe echolocation. Um, I don't know, but that's the first thing I thought about. Um, and they can yeah. hear so well, maybe they, that's why they can hear so well is because they use sounds bouncing off of certain structures to where they can figure out exactly where it's at. I don't, I don't know. And, you know, if you look at their hearing, it's not that, it's not that they they have a really specialized, I mean, hearing mechanism like say elephants or species that kind right. of funnel sound in. I mean, turkeys yeah. have a really simple ear, Yeah. Uh, but there's, there's clearly something we don't understand about how this bird perceives sound and then is able to pinpoint the sound's location. That it is pretty remarkable. Yeah. And all yeah. hunters know it. I mean, we've <clears> all been <throat> in a situation where we call the bird and they end up behind us or, you know, they do that because they know exactly where that sound's coming from. Well, yeah, and I think I think they do. I mean, they have to have somewhat of a pretty good memory because, I mean, they, they roost most of the time. They roost in the same general location every day or every night. So we've actually found some... that we've actually found that not to be true, which is one of the really? things. Yep. Yep. And I would have never personally believed it, but the, the GPS telemetry that we have, I mean, we, we get a roost location on every Tom every night. So we know at midnight, the unit collects a point every night. And what you actually see is that these birds move around the landscape almost every night 
And that absolutely defies logic based on my own personal observations as a turkey hunter. But, but humor me a second. Okay. What, what we actually see is that you have a tom that has six, seven, eight different roost locations. And he, within those roost locations, sometimes he uses the same tree each time he's there, and sometimes he doesn't. There may be four or five different trees in that spot, if you will, that he uses. And what these toms do is they stay, they'll go from one roost to the next roost to the next roost, and they circle back to these different roost sites. And they have a really low fidelity from one day to the next to those roosts. So what, and what that means is they're much more likely not to use the same roost two nights in a row as they are. Hmm. And I know that seems bizarre based on our own observations, which is I heard, I heard that bird in the same spot the last three nights. Yes, you might have. <laughs> But our data suggests that what you probably heard were multiple birds across those three nights. You probably heard one tom that was here, and then he was gone. And the next night, you may have heard a different tom that was in that same general spot. Maybe not in the same tree, but he was in the same spot. And to me, that makes sense. When at first I thought I was really skeptical but it it now makes sense to me because you you're a tom you roost in places where you get a lot of attention you call a hen hears you and she comes to see you the best way to breed as many hens as you can is to move around your environment each night and call from different places and breed as many hens as you can versus sitting in one spot and calling repeatedly night after night after night and only breeding with a handful of hens. And if you, if you think about it from the standpoint of predation, it makes even more sense. If you are a bird that can get harassed, whether it's from a hunter, whether it's from a, a coyote or a horned owl or whatever, then it behooves you not to sit in the same spot every night and gobble. In other words, you it makes more sense for you to move around and be a little less predictable. And that's exactly what the data we've collected shows. Man, that's pretty awesome. It, it I, I honestly, when we started seeing that a few years ago, I thought, no, no, something's wrong. And I literally, before we spoke this morning, I'm I'm editing a, a student's graduate thesis that, he defends on Monday, and he sh he found the exact same thing that these birds do the behavior that I just described, and it does make it makes sense if you kind of step back and remove. It makes sense to me, I guess. If when I step back and look at it, ignoring my own personal biases as far as you know, I saw, I know I saw that, and yeah. just think about it in a in a broader context, it does make sense, which then kind of begs the question to me that do these, are there certain places on the landscape that are just really good roost spots? Yeah. Like 
Or there's just some places that, I mean, you and I may go out there and look at it and go, you know what, that really doesn't look any different than that place over there. But to a turkey, are there just some places that are better roost than others? And I would say probably, yeah, there are. And it probably all hinges on, can I get that sound across the landscape and not die or get disturbed by doing it? That There's a trade-off between where do I roost and gobble from and how many, how many different of these places do I have in my, in my home range? Yeah. Whereas Rio's, as you know, I mean, Rio's and Merriam's tend and particularly Rio's tend to be really tied to their roost sites and they tend to go back to the exact same spots, one or two spots every night, but that's a different ball game. I mean, Rio's live in landscapes that don't have as many roosts, and Easterns, in, at least in most places, have unlimited numbers of roost sites. Right. You know. Right. I completely agree. But, yeah, that was pretty – it's kind of eye-opening. I never thought of that. I would have never guessed that as well, like you were saying. Um, but I think we can go ahead and wrap this up. We, uh, we're going to talk about a lot of good stuff. Um We'll go ahead and bring it to an end here. Um, man, I really appreciate you coming on here and talking with us today. And uh, not a problem. I've enjoyed it. It was it was pretty All, awesome. Yeah, always willing to talk turkey, for sure. Heck, yeah. Um, well, I guess if there's any kind of – I don't know if you guys have some kind of outlet or anything like that for people to see stuff and all that, but – if you do, I guess let everybody know. Yeah, we do. Check we, that stuff um, out. I po- I post a lot of I post a lot of our research updates on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, if you just do a search on Wild Turkey Doc, you'll find my Twitter feed and my Instagram account. Uh, I post stuff every couple days on both of those outlets. Um, Georgia Department of Natural Resources Wildlife Resources Division. I work with them to, to help them get press releases and, and, and blogs and, and things out. And, and anyone is obviously always welcome to email me. You can, if you go to the Warnell school of forestry, and natural resources homepage, you can find my, my email. I mean, always feel free to email or call and, and I'll, I'll be happy to provide any information I can. Awesome. Well, Mike, I, I really appreciate you coming on here, man. And it was real great talking with you. Not a problem. All right. Thank you, sir. Yeah, yeah ma'am. You're welcome. Bye-bye.